This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about the government shutdown in Washington and the effect that it's having on vulnerable Americans, people who depend on government programs for things like food or tax credits. What's going to happen to them if this shutdown goes a little longer? We're going to have a number of different voices weigh in on that, and we will love to hear from you as well about the effects you see around you right now here in Michigan uh, now that the government is shut down. So you're going to stay tuned to that conversation. It should get started at about half past the hour. But we want to start today with a bit of surprise that happened yesterday when the Republican majority on the Michigan Supreme Court elected Bridget Mary McCormick, a Democrat, to be the chief justice. McCormick says this is all in the spirit of the court's members being really committed to nonpartisanship. McCormick also rounds out a historic lineup of women in all of the top elected positions in our state. That's where we want to begin the conversation today. And I want to welcome Bridget Mary McCormick, new Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court to Detroit today. Thanks, Steve. It's good to get to talk to you. Yes. Uh, so uh, there, there are a couple things about this that I think stand out. One, of course, is just the, the unusual nature of this move by the Republican majority. But I also think it's important to put it in some context here in the state of Michigan. It's not uh, f- 15, almost 20 years ago, I guess, uh, since uh, this court, the Michigan Supreme Court, was kind of a laughing stock on a national level. I can remember reading articles about how bitter the divisions were, how things couldn't get done uh, among the court members. So, so it's not just that this is a big deal given the divide between Republicans and Democrats uh, uh, nationally and, and the sort of bitter, bitter divisions we see. It's, it's remarkable because of how far it says this court has come. Well, uh, thank you. I, I mean, um, you you, de- you definitely would like your court to make national news for um, uh, its good work and figuring out how to provide more justice to more people, and not for um, its rancor. So, um, I am I'm happy to be part of a court that I believe um, is going to do a lot of good things for a lot of people. And so, I'm I, I wasn't part of the court back then, and um, <laughs> since I've been there, it's been. Um, a great experience. So you also named uh, Justice uh, Viviano uh, to be your Chief Justice pro tem. He's a Republican. Uh, this was a- another move to sort of, I think, signal that that partisanship is not the way that you want to structure things uh, on the court. But uh, talk a little more about what that means in practical terms. We elect justices. Uh, along partisan campaigns that are nominated by parties in this state, how how can you uh, how can you divorce that process? I guess from the process of deliberating over cases. So I have a whole lot to say about this, and probably like more than you you have time to hear from <laughs> me because I teach a whole course about this. So <laughs> we'll try and I'll try and uh, I'll try and give you my top lines. I mean, you know, as you know well, Michigan has an odd system where we nominate um, our justices in parties. But it's but on the ballot we are elected in um, in a nonpartisan section, and there's a reason for that because you know the court obviously is different from the other from the other branches of government from the policy making branches of government, and then in that it needs to be the um, the, the sort of um, independent broker, right? We, we're supposed to 
interpret the law, the policies that the other branches make, um, and not and not make the policy. And so it's actually the nonpartisan nature of the court is kind of critical to public confidence in its outcomes. You know, we we have to make unpopular decisions, and to be able to make unpopular decisions. Um, I mean, unpopular with with everybody. You know, one day they're going to be unpopular with one side, and the next day they're going to be unpopular with the next side, with the other side. Um, if we're doing our job well, um, and so the nonpartisan nature of this branch of government is is, is frankly critical to it to, to to its doing its job with integrity, and also critical to the public having confidence in what we do. Um, so it's pretty important to me. I know it's important to um, my colleagues, um, and I hope to be able to. Um, make sure people understand that it's a hard it's a hard lift but that's it's part i think part of our job is making sure the public gets that at the same time we saw justice elizabeth clement who is a republican face a lot of partisan scrutiny from her party for her vote to allow the gerrymandering question on the ballot last November. Now, she won re-election, and on swearing day, uh, swearing in day, she posted a picture with you on social media and discussed her friendship with you. Do you think that the pressure that she faced from outside the court, from partisan influences, uh, partisan interests, was was part of what maybe motivated the court to make this kind of statement at this time? So I think that partisans on both sides of the aisle um, sometimes forget that the court is um, nonpartisan and um, Justice Clement handled that situation probably more publicly than I've ever seen anybody else handle it since I've been um, on the court. But she handled it uh, quite well. Obviously, she was the top vote getter by a whole lot. So I think the you know what that tells us is that the voters, in fact, um, want an independent judiciary. And actually, we know that from lots of National Center for State Court data. That that's one of the top things the public wants is an independent judiciary. Um, but um, she's, you know, she, 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 like the rest of my colleagues, understand how important it is that people start to understand that this is the way the court does business. Um, I don't, you know, that, that, that was that was one incident. There have been many others. Um, I always say that any judge, any justice who hasn't disappointed her friends um, <laughs> probably isn't a very good judge, right? Um, so, you know, uh, she had a very public example of that this summer, um, but she, frankly, I think was able to um, prove that when this branch operates in an independent way, it's it's best for everybody. Uh, talk a little more about your working relationship with Justice Viviano and and how this this partnership, I guess, will play out with you as Chief Justice and he as Chief Justice Pro Tem. Yeah. Um, so Justice Viviano and I started on the court kind of around the same time. We can we sort of grew up in the court together. I started. January 1, 2013, when I was elected and, you know, had been elected that November. And Justice Viviano was appointed about six weeks later. And so we sort of were the, the, the new folks together. And we kind of grew up on this court together and figured out what it meant to be a justice on the Michigan Supreme Court and what we could contribute. And we became very close friends as a result. Um, and frankly, every other court in the state has a has a pro tem. Every chief judge in, in you know in, in 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 every other part of the state has a has a pro tem. And it seemed to me that um, there's a whole lot of work to do, and sharing it makes a lot of sense. It also makes sense for the court's succession planning, which seems like a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and Justice Viviano is incredibly energetic and capable, and um, especially um, has been he's been he's been our lead on this statewide e filing project, and so. 
I really am grateful that he has agreed to serve as my pro tem, the first time the Supreme Court's ever had one, but um, I hope it will continue to have one after my tenure because um, it just, I think, allows us to get more done, um, and that's that's our job. Uh, in addition to, to hearing cases, uh, the Michigan Supreme Court also oversees some functioning of, of state courts. You've talked about trying to make courts more accessible and engage with the communities they serve. Talk about what, what, what you mean by that. Yeah, again, those, those are also, um, so my, so my priorities are to, to make sure our, our courts are engaged with the communities they serve so they can be more responsive to the community's needs, to increase access to our courts, to people who either can't, either have a hard time accessing it because of where they live, you know, or when they work, or their, their level of resources. Um, and, um, in addition to that, making sure people can, can get their business done at our courts efficiently and we don't we don't waste their time unnecessarily and and that includes a lot of um aggressive um technology improvements so people can do online dispute resolution and and access courts without having to necessarily miss a day of work the the access to justice piece is is really important and it's another one of those um factors that we know from the national center's polling data the public really cares about um not everybody can afford a lawyer um, for for many of the things that they have to appear in court for. And as you know, Stephen, most people, when they appear in court, it's not usually for a happy occasion. There are a few exceptions to that. Adoptions are usually happy and uh, weddings. Uh, but other than that, most people, when they show up in court, it's because, you know, something something happened that, that isn't, it make, makes today not their best day. <laughs> and so the, to the extent we can figure out how to serve those people better, especially those that can't afford to hire a lawyer to help them navigate it, then we are doing better by the public we serve. And, and that's our job. We're, 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 here, to, we're here to serve the public. Um, and so there are a lot of ways to do that. We, and, and technology is a part of the answer to that, but that's not the only answer. And um, increasing uh, access to justice for people who have a hard time um, getting it now is one of our priorities. Mm. Okay. Well, congratulations again, uh, Chief Justice McCormick, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out, this this new, more aggressive nonpartisan era, I guess, on the Michigan Supreme Court. <laughs> I like that. Aggressive yeah. nonpartisanship. That's <laughs> <Right>? it. <laughs> Hashtag aggressive nonpartisanship. <laughs> That's right. You That's feel good. free to I borrow started. that. Yeah. <laughs> borrowed it. I'm just feeling it, man. <laughs> That's right. Just take it. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, and thanks for all you do. Sure. All right. Meanwhile, in Lansing, the new House Speaker, Lee Chatfield, called a meeting with living former state House Speakers. Eight of them, in fact, gathered to discuss leadership at the state capitol. Among them was Jace Bulger of Marshall, considered in Lansing to have been one of the most effective speakers, at least in recent history. He joins us now to talk about yesterday's events. Jace Bulger, welcome to Detroit Today. Well, good morning, Stephen. Good yeah. to be with you. Yes, it's good to hear your voice. It's been a long time since I've spoken with you. Um, uh, let's start with why this meeting of the speakers was called and whether this kind of thing is at all typical uh, to happen at the beginning of a new speaker's term. Yeah, I smiled at your uh, your reference to it. He did only invite the living former speakers. <laughs> well, uh, because, right. <laughs> because I would I would say that too. When I started, I, I met with all the former living speakers, and I got a lot of grief when I'd tell people that they'd say, oh, "Really, only the living ones." You didn't go talk um, to the dead ones, right? <laughs> <laughs> at least not that you publicly admit to. Um, 
I think several former speakers have done that as they've entered office, done that in that they've talked to other former speakers. But this is the first time I'm aware of, of gathering all those former speakers together. And uh, we had an opportunity to meet with incoming speaker Chatfield, uh, and he asked us all questions about operations, about dealing with the other um, the other party, the minority party in the House, and, um, and advancing legislation, committee assignments. So we had pretty good conversation about a lot of different issues, and he was he was able to gain different perspectives from the other speakers that are, that are there. And Speaker Chatfield, often his age gets mentioned because sure. he is young. However, as I look, he's very wise. He was wise to do this. He was very interested in getting that input, and also, as I look, he has far more experience than I ever had when I took the position. I had not so much chaired as a legislative body, a legislative committee at any level. The county government, I was in the minority. The House, I was in the minority. He's ushered through some big legislation. He's chaired a very key uh, committee, a couple of terms, and he's presided over the, the chamber, the House chamber, for extended periods of time. So, so looking back on your time as Speaker, talk about what's unique about that position, uh, the kind of things that you found surprising or frustrating about the work. And, and my sense uh, of the speaker is, is that it's kind of a lonely position in some ways, that, that uh, the, the responsibilities uh, that attend the position sort of take you away from uh, fellowship with not just your own uh, party, of course, but, but also uh, the opposition. You know, that's actually a very uh, insightful comment, uh, that it's, it's a position that you're never alone, and yet you're incredibly lonely. It's a position <laughs> that I used to joke that you, I, you wouldn't have time to use the restroom without somebody knowing where you were going, because you don't have any free time during your day, and everybody always wants your time. Um, and certainly with today's communication devices, texting, cell phone calls, you never ever escape it, no matter where you are. However, there's nobody else that understands what's going on. The governor doesn't understand what it takes to motivate colleagues in the House to vote for something that's difficult, because you don't control those other members. They're sent there by their citizens, and they're sent there to represent their citizens. So you can't fire them. You can take some action, but you can't force them to vote for anything. So you've got to convince them. And many times, those colleagues are having issues. They may have a personal issue. They may have a child who's died. They may have a um, marital difficulty. They may have done something wrong. And in many of those cases, you're interacting with those colleagues, uh, yet you can't tell that to anybody else. Even my closest team, and I had an incredibly close and supportive leadership team, there was a lot that was going on that they didn't know was going on. And I would just always tell them, trust me, you don't want to know everything. Hmm. Uh, when, when you were speaker, uh, from uh, 2011 to 2014, Republicans controlled both houses of the legislature, and we had a new we had a new Republican governor at the time. Uh, Speaker Chatfield takes over with a little bit of a different uh, landscape. I mean, Republicans still control the legislature, but we, of course, now have a Democratic governor. Talk about the the, the ways in which. Uh, that, that partisan divide can make it uh, more difficult, I guess, to get things done in, in Lansing. And, and I guess what advice you gave to Lee Chatfield uh, about working with uh, a Democratic governor? Well, 
certainly he'll face challenges, but challenges are opportunities. I think he was wise yesterday to point out to Washington, D.C., uh, in his public comments and say that Michigan will not be like Washington, D.C. I mean, you look at D.C., and they should be able to make the personal tax cuts permanent. They should be able to do infrastructure improvement, and heaven forbid, they should be able to adopt immigration reform. And yet we're not seeing them do any of that. You mentioned 11 to 14, and we were we did things that were supported only on a partisan basis, whether that was right to work or expanding education choice or a tax rewrite. However, we also did things that received strong bipartisan support, the Detroit bankruptcy settlement, the Healthy Michigan, uh, which is health insurance and reform and expansion and minimum wage. And Speaker Chatfield yesterday talked about civil asset forfeiture and criminal justice reform, auto insurance reform, more money to roads. Those are things that they can adopt on a bipartisan basis. So he will most certainly have challenges. The but the, how those will play out will be a combination of his leadership, of his persuasiveness, but also individual members' determinations to, to deliver solutions. It is easy to say no. No is the easiest vote in the legislature because you can always find a reason to vote no. I was hosting school kids on the floor of the, the House one day, and um, I talked about, the, look at the desks. There's 110 desks in this room. There's 110 opinions. And if you want to get something passed, you have to have 56 people supported. And when that bill goes up, you have a yes or a no button. You don't have a maybe kind of or sort of button. And so you may like something that's in the bill, but you may not like something else that's in the bill. And one of the moms in the audience said, well, what do you do in that case? And I smiled and said, man, that's every bill that goes up. Every bill that goes up, there's something about it you may not like because you had to get 55 other colleagues. You had to address their concerns and their issues within that bill. So as Speaker Chatfield looks to deliver these results, I hope his colleagues, the other members in the House, are dedicated to finding a way to deliver a solution rather than finding an excuse to vote no. So, so I want to ask you a little about term limits. Term limits were the reason that, that you had to leave the legislature in 2014, and in a way, they help explain why Lee Chatfield, at age 30, uh, has only been in the House for two terms, is now the Speaker. Um, talk about the effect of term limits on that leadership role in particular. Does it make it even harder to get 56 votes, for instance, for a particular bill or an idea? Does it make it harder to build that kind of working relationship that you need with uh, with your own caucus even to be able to get things done? Absolutely. Simple answer is it makes it extremely difficult. It is not good and it's not productive. But let me make a couple comments. Um, number one, you mentioned Speaker Chatfield and his age, but again, I'll point out, uh, I'll use, prefer to use my own situation, that I hadn't chaired a committee at any level. I would travel a little bit across the country with different groups, and people would say, you've only been in one term and you've never been even a committee chair. Do you think you were ready to be Speaker of the House? And I would have to say, no way. I wasn't anywhere near ready. But you didn't have that choice in Michigan. So what the, what it does is it empowers, frankly, the bureaucracy. It empowers uh, the administration. But uh, it doesn't make it impossible. And let me go to the, the flip of that. You look in Washington, D.C., and you'll hear a lot of conversation about it takes trust to forge an agreement. And I think that's absolutely accurate. But they don't have term limits in D.C., and they haven't developed that trust. So it, it is a challenge. It will make it more difficult than it needed to be. But 
they will need to not use that as an excuse. They will need to find ways to work together. They will need to find ways to build that trust. And they won't have the option to do things that we were with only one party's support. They will be forced to find uh, bipartisan support, and that's because the governor is of a different party. And so they will have to forge that, and they just have to accept that right away. Uh, I'm sure there are things that you told Lee Chatfield that you might not want to share with uh, with everybody, but uh, give us an idea of some advice you gave him that uh, that you don't mind us us knowing about. Yeah, um, I may not have put it in these words, but he's clearly a student of history, and I guess uh, kind of a sentiment I would share is learn from history, but don't be limited by it. Uh, there was a lot that happened from 11 to 14 that people had said that's been tried before. It's been you know, just as simple as getting the budget done before summer. Uh, there was uh, really laughter. And then when we talked about doing the um, tax rewrite before that first budget, so in the first six months, rewrite the budget, eliminate a $1.5 billion deficit and get on a path to do this. Now it's old news. Uh, and everybody ex- will expect the budget to be done by June. That's a simple example that history would have said, don't set expectations to do that. So it's a, he's got to balance a uh, uh, he's got to make a balance, strike a balance from learning those lessons from those of us who served before while not being limited by our, our experience. He's got to forge his own experience and set his sights high. Okay, Jace Boulder, former state House Speaker, a Republican from Marshall. Really great to hear from you, and thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. You bet. The best to you, Stephen, and to all your listeners. And to you as well. Take care. Okay, up next, the federal shutdown over border wall funding is beginning to show its effects, and it's the most vulnerable Americans who have the most to lose. We're going to talk about the populations most impacted by the shutdown next. Also remember, if you have to miss any of the show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation entirely. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.